Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. Last month, regular podcast guest Joe Brannigan from Tulipwood Economics had a paper he co-authored on COVID-19 policy responses published by the Menzies Research Centre. The paper is titled COVID-19, Getting Australia Back to Work. This episode features a conversation I had with Joe when the report was released a few weeks ago. There have been some developments regarding COVID-19 in Australia since then, particularly the growth of COVID-19 in Victoria, which has surprised so many of us. So Joe will first give us an update before I play the interview on his report. Joe, good to have you back on. Thanks, Gene. Thanks for the opportunity. Excellent. Joe, I thought it'd be good for us to have a quick chat before I play the interview, which I thought was excellent. I think there are a lot of really important points in it. I just wanted to check with you whether there's anything that listeners should know about what's going on in Victoria where we're getting 700 plus cases each day. We thought we had it under control. Border restrictions are being imposed again across Australia. Does any of that impact the message in your report, which is about how we need to find this balance between keeping COVID-19 under control, but also reopening the economy so we can get on with our lives as best we can? Thanks, Gene. Um, I, the short answer is, is I think what's happened uh, recently in Victoria uh, and to a lesser extent in New South Wales has, has really reinforced what Professor Ergas and I were saying, that, uh, you know, this, uh, this virus is almost impossible uh, to eliminate without absolutely, you know, drastic draconian measures that would set us back um, for many years, if not if not decades. So what I see uh, has has happened, uh, particularly in Melbourne, reinforces that need um, to balance the economic and 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 social costs and really target, as we said in the report. The most vulnerable, and what concerns me, Gene, so you mean is to protect the most vulnerable, to really target the protection at the most vulnerable, the protection of the most vulnerable, and you know, obviously, what we're talking about is is aged care, and and aged care is is, uh, you know, some people might visualise aged care as retirement homes. These these aren't retirement homes. These are quite elderly people uh, that that really need to be protected uh, from a virus like this. Uh, you know, they're in their 80s and 90s. They might have dementia. They might have other comorbidities. Uh, and, and, and these people are very seriously at risk. And there's processes in place um, in aged care where, you know, the elderly may not automatically um, be put on respirators or be taken to hospital because of protocols um, uh, that are in place for the very elderly. So I think, you know, that's obviously... Uh, where we need to uh, target um, our thinking as opposed to just simply trying to, you know, drive this R naught below zero by, by completely shutting the economy. So what, what I think is important to think about um, still is this idea of balance. At the moment, we seem to have drifted in policy terms from this flattening of the curve mitigation strategy through to a suppression strategy. And now it's fairly clear that there is no doubt we've arrived at an elimination strategy. And so 
cabinets are largely listening to that epidemiologist voice when they're making these decisions. And it's, it's, it's not clear to me that we're getting the balance right. And I think it's important just to think about this. If we take a step back and ask some simple questions, because I don't think we really answered these questions in a public debate early on, and perhaps we should have. And the first question is, is a steady state achievable in term? And what I mean by that is, are we able to manage this virus, flatten the curve and get a certain number of cases and obviously deaths per day, you know, such as two, four, 600? Is that possible? Now, in economic terms, what I'm talking about is, are we in a situation where we can apply a incremental or marginal type analysis where we are balancing economic costs and health benefits and slightly changing policy on the margin to hit a certain steady state of cases per day? Or are we truly in this multiple equilibria um, world where we just we just can't get a, a handle on this virus and we don't know whether um, you know if we if we try and target 500 cases a day, we can't because it might get away away from us. Now, if the answer is yes, which I suspect it is looking at the most recent global data, you know, these countries that have these measures in place, it looks like they've hit a steady state where, you know, some of these European countries, you know, the UK, France, Germany, where they're getting a certain number of cases a day and seem to be managing the virus. If, if the answer is yes, then what level in Australia does society choose? You know, what, what, what do we want in terms of what level that is? Now, if the answer is no, and it is truly, you know, a corner solution, it is either let the virus rip through the community or eliminate it, then of course, you know, 85, 90, maybe 95% of people will support the elimination strategy, and there's widespread, you know, uh, granted there's widespread support for the elimination strategy at the moment. I know where I'm from in Queensland that probably 75 or 80% of people support uh, the Queensland Premier completely shutting the border this morning. So what I'm saying is we seem to have skipped to that second question and we seem to have implicitly accepted that it's not possible to treat this as a marginal problem, to, 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 to try and nuance it out, to try and hit a certain number of cases a day. And we've, and we've skipped that question. We, politicians seem to have accepted that either it's, it's all or nothing. It's either let the virus rip through the community or completely eliminate it. And what I think and what Professor Ergas and I were saying in the paper is we need to revisit that question and ask ourselves, is it possible to handle a certain number of cases a day in order to keep going, in order for our economy to keep operating? Yes, absolutely, Joe. Uh, I think that's a good point about how we've drifted to this elimination strategy when initially our political leaders were saying the justification for all the restrictions was flattening the curve, and then we had a bit of success with that. We had a lot of success with that, and now suddenly we think it's we have to go for elimination, which may not be feasible. We just don't know. I have an open mind on this, but I do recognise that it looks bad. It looks bad. It looks like 
we haven't had a clear strategy or a clear idea of the end game and there's no way we should have had restrictions imposed, relaxed them, reimposed them at the whole state or whole country level. I can't see how that makes sense. So I think there are a lot of great points in your paper with uh, Dr. Ergas and, uh, yeah, bye, we'll, uh, I'll play that for the listeners soon. But are there any final points before we wrap up this segment, Joe? Well, I think, Gene, another, as you just mentioned, another point we tried to make in the paper, which I think is reinforced by this, um, uh, you know, kind of two steps forward, one step um, back policy regime that you just mentioned, is that there are both short and long-term costs to changing um, these policies. So, you know, the short the short term cost is higher because it's a surprise. These these policies aren't very well flagged or signalled. And then, of course, there are these enormous long term costs with this separation in in you know employers being connected to their employees in the labour market. Um, you know, there's capital lying on factory floors, not being utilised um, as well as it could. So all you know, all of these. Uh, you know, all of these policies have an effect at the firm level and it will take a long time um, for them to unwind. Now, you know, the costs at the state level uh, politically are very low, of course, because the federal government um, is bearing most of the cost. And at, at a political or from a political point of view at the state level, the, the state premiers reap the benefits of uh, you know, zero cases per day, zero deaths, uh, but they don't bear the costs of uh, job keeper, job keep seeker, and and everything else to support the economy. And uh, you know, as you know, Gene, from a from a broad um, public financial management perspective, the the Commonwealth always stands behind the states in fiscal terms. So I think there's some perverse things happening here, um, particularly at state level and it's driving political decisions by state premiers and allowing them um, to get away with not doing what cabinet should do and that is balance things balance in a public broad public policy sense you know balance the health and economic outcomes and have a have a long-term uh, view of this problem yes yes good points Joe well what I'll do is I'll play the interview and if you're listening in a country other than Australia, I'd still recommend that you listen to the interview because I think there are a lot of points that are relevant to uh, to all countries around the world and how they've dealt with uh, coronavirus. Would you agree, Joe? This is something of broad applicability across the world. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is this is the debate at the moment in the United States, um, which has a has a similar system to us in the way, in the sense that, that that state governors are probably the decision makers in terms of balancing um, the costs and, and benefits, similar to state premiers. Uh, it's a debate uh, in England where uh, you know their policy goal is to is to uh, drive the R naught to below one, and then have very localised measures where almost suburb by suburb they see the R naught getting above one, and they and they enforce you know, more draconian measures in that particular area. So I think in many countries, um, 
especially countries that have a vigorous democratic society and, and vigorous debate, we're moving towards a more nuanced policy of trying to balance the health and economic outcomes. And I think uh, we really need to have that vigorous debate in Australia. We, we can't just stand idly by and, 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 and have politicians make these profound decisions without questioning them. You know, whether whoever's right or wrong, we, no one, we don't know yet. I mean, historians will tell us, but uh, we need to have that debate and the debate needs to be had now. Absolutely. Thanks, Joe. That was great. Thanks, and let's, uh, let's chat again soon. Today, I'm going to be talking with one of the authors of a new Menzies Research Centre paper, COVID-19, Getting Australia Safely Back to Work. The author is my old friend and former Treasury colleague, Joe Brannigan, Director of Tulipwood Economics. Joe, good to be chatting with you again. Great to be with you again, Gene. How are you? Excellent. Thanks, Joe. Joe, I'm really looking forward to our discussion. I read Nick Cater's piece in The Australian yesterday and I thought, terrific, this paper's finally out. It's a it's been in development for a while now and I've been looking forward to it coming out. I'd like to begin by asking you to imagine your, you've been called into the PM's office. The PM's had a detailed briefing on your report prepared for him, but he hasn't had time to read the briefing. The PM <laughs> asks you, what's it all about, Joe? Could you tell the PM what's it all, what's it all about, please? Well, PM, I, I guess there's, there's, there's two key points. One is uh, stay the course with suppression because elimination is not a viable option. And the second point is that at the right time, we should review what we've done and learn the lessons. So they're basically the two uh, points of the paper. And, and you're right, Gene, it was a long time in development because, as you well know, the situation was changing uh, uh, daily, even even hour by hour, uh, for many weeks um, through February, March, and April. Uh, and um, but we're we're happy um, the paper's out, and we think this is probably an appropriate time, given what's happening in Victoria, and to a lesser extent uh, in New South Wales, and the debate around um, what we now call suppression versus elimination. Um, is, is heating up again, and, and so I think it's an appropriate time to just take a step back and, and talk about this from a, uh, you know, a broader public policy perspective. Um, okay, Joe, can we just chat about this suppression versus elimination debate quickly? Now, I think Grattan Institute came out the other day and they said, well, we've got the opportunity now to eliminate the virus if we do the right thing. Of course, that depends on how Victoria goes. We've had over 300 cases today, so very concerning. You're saying that there's just no way we're going to be able to eliminate the virus without imposing you know, more costs on the economy and therefore suppression is the only real option. But what does suppression look like? Do you have an, uh, any thoughts on... What does it mean? Like, practically, what does suppression mean in policy terms? Well, I, I think um, 
the, the first point to make is I think that, uh, you know, from the perspective of the, the Prime Minister, the, the State Premiers, the National Cabinet, it, it's very much um, uh, everyone is aligned in terms of their view about suppression. I, I think the Premier said, uh, I think it, the Queensland Premier said even earlier today that, you know, everyone would, would love to have elimination but it's just not realistic and I think the Prime Minister uh, said the same thing. Uh, elimination is, is, is just not a viable option. You know, very rarely do corner solutions um, give you the right answer in, in public policy. And I think the problem is that those who argue for elimination, and, and there are many that still do, have the wrong counterfactual in mind. That They assume that the alternative is to do absolutely nothing. And they also assume that the, the true infection fatality rate is 1%, which, which is what we originally thought it was all the way back in, in late January and early February. So the argument goes something like, well, we need elimination to save 150 to 200,000, 250,000 lives. We need stage four. We need to reseal our borders. Um, otherwise, you know, this, this human tragedy occurs. But I think that's wrong because we've learnt a lot more about the virus since January. We've introduced the stage one, the stage two measures, uh, and that's dramatically curtailed the spread of the virus. So, you know, we have control over this virus in terms of a national, from a national perspective now. And the estimated infection fatality rate, um, if you think about the number of asymptomatic cases, the infection fatality rate is much lower than 1%. It's probably no more than 0.5%. So if you think about Australia's example, we have 111 deaths and 10,300 or so cases. So that gives you a 1% case fatality rate. But even if you took a minimum uh, estimate of the number of asymptomatic cases, say Professor Doherty is saying, well, it would be two to three times the number of cases you're picking up, then that drops the infection fatality rate from 1% down to one third of a percent. So we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of avoided deaths as the benefit here. It's, it's magnitudes lower. On the other side is the cost to the economy. So you ask me, what does suppression looks like? Suppression looks local. It's, it's that principle of subsidiarity. You're responding locally. You're investing your resources in tracking and tracing and quarantine. If there's an outbreak, you jump on it. It's reactive. It's not preemptive because the cost is so high to stay in that siege mentality, that preemptive place, which is the elimination strategy. It reacts, but it reacts quickly and it allows people that are not uh, that are still not a high risk to get on with their lives. So it's about locally shutting down areas, not closing state borders. That's a, that's a you know, a, a well-known example or, a, you know, this is a sticking point or a debating point about borders. I think that suppression is about looking at things locally and managing but accepting that you will have, you're not going to have zero cases a day for a long time yet, um, and, you know, this, this virus, it's, it's sneaking around the country. It's, I, just, I just can't see um, that we could practically eliminate the virus because the cost would be too, much, too high to bear.
Okay. So you're talking about local responses now. It looks like that means we have to lock down the whole of metropolitan Melbourne. That's what's happening at the moment. What do you think about what Dan Andrews is doing? I mean, let's put aside, we'll leave aside the fact that uh, they made mistakes and that's led to this outbreak. So that's... We acknowledge that. Sure. What about the decision to reimpose the lockdowns? Is he doing the right thing? I think if that's if that's the advice and he's balanced it, you know, against these suppression objectives, then that's fair enough for him to do because it's local and it's targeted and there's clearly an outbreak. So, you know, I don't want to argue... Uh, against the the medical advice, you know, on the kind of this case by case basis, the general point is that the response needs to be local and it needs to be scalable and matched to the potential. And clearly, you know, when you're getting today, there were I think 317 cases, so you're getting this rise. You need to jump on it quickly. The the question is whether the six weeks is is too long. I mean, six weeks gives you three cycles. Um, Three, three cycles of the virus, you know, from testing to, to you know, recovery. So, so, you know, my sense is that perhaps six weeks is too long, but, uh, you know, he can always, they can always change that if they jump on top of this thing early. So, you know, I'm not against um, that strategy. It's, it's reactive, it's scalable, uh, and, it, and it's local. Uh, and, you know, it, I guess these are some of the advantages of a federation where we can have a national cabinet come together, but they can make local decisions. Okay. Joe, would you know what the difference is between those different stages? I'm sure you do, and you probably put it in your report, but it'd be helpful to know because I, it's a bit unclear to me. There's a stage three and then there's stage four. Is st- stage four is the, the harshest, is that right? Well, I guess yeah, they just get they get more and more draconian. I, I think we're we're in we're in stage three now. There, there's there's um, restrictions on uh, uh, gatherings. You know, there's I think for most states at the moment, it's it's been increased to three hundred to five hundred. Um, there's the one person per per four square metre rule. Um, uh, you know, and they, I think some of these, some of these kind of individual or very um, personal um, recommendations or rules may stay for many months. You know, they, they might even be semi-permanent through uh, bad, you know, particularly bad flu seasons, etc. Um, but obviously, you know, when you're getting up to complete lockdowns. I think at the moment in stage three, there's four reasons that you're allowed to uh, go out, including, I think, work and study if you're able to. Um, Stage four would be more of a complete lockdown where you basically can't go out, Um, similar to what happened in the the towers in Melbourne. That would be, I I guess, a localised version um, of what would happen, which would be, you know, catastrophic if that were to happen across um, the whole country for six weeks. Mm. So, Joe, you mentioned before that the fatality rate is actually, instead of being 1%, it's, it's possibly a third of a percent. So if I remember what they were saying at the beginning of this 
pandemic, they were saying that COVID-19 is 10 times deadlier than the flu. Mm. So you're saying instead of 10 times, it's still three times, it, it's rather three times deadlier. What do we know? Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, you don't know the true infection fatality rate. You know the case fatality rate, which is, you know, the number of positive cases divided by the number of tests. But that gives you an overestimate of the true infection fatality rate because it's biased towards people that are showing symptoms. You also know the population fatality rate. You divide the number of people that have lost their lives divided by the whole population. But that gives you uh, an underestimate because you're including um, a very large proportion of the population that, that haven't been infected. So the true, so the true infection fatality rate is is very hard to determine. But from from you know the literature I've read and what I've seen overseas, it's somewhere between you know that that very bad flu season of zero point one percent, and that assumes that um, the number of asymptomatic cases is 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 much higher, you know, ten times higher than the number of people testing positive, uh, up to about one percent, where you're assuming that you're pretty much capturing um, everyone, you're pretty much testing everyone that actually has the virus, which I think clearly we're not. I think Australia's only tested, uh, I think, three, I think we've had three million tests to date. Um, So we're not, um, you know, we're nowhere near testing every single Australian. So, So the true infection fatality rate lies somewhere between the case fatality rate, which we know, which is which is one uh, percent, and the population fatality rate, which is very very low, it's it's um, zero point four in a hundred thousand. So it's you know it's zero point zero 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 four. So so nobody knows, but um, you know the the best estimates are around that half a percent mark. And I think if you applied that you get a much lower number of um, avoided deaths as your benefit to these lockdowns than you would if you simply said, well, let's multiply 1% by 60% of the Australian population to 100% of the Australian population, which gives you 150 to 250,000 deaths. I think that's not your, the plausible counterfactual given all the work that's been done since January um, to try and uh, suppress the virus. Okay. Joe, earlier you mentioned that you think that the border closures along the lines of state borders were misguided. Can I just ask you, what did you do in your report? Is it a cost-benefit analysis? Have you undertaken a, a cost-benefit analysis or are you just reaching this conclusion, this is your gut feeling on the net benefits of particular policies. That's right. This is just a principle. This is the principle of subsidiarity, you know, applying this localised principle and reacting. So there hasn't been, um, uh, you know, a, a, a detailed, you know, proper cost-benefit analysis of, of what of how the Australian government's reacted to um, coronavirus. I'm sure there will be one 
undertaken at the right time. But uh, this report is based on first principles. Uh, and, and the principle is that um, elimination uh, as, a, as a kind of a corner, as an extreme corner solution, as we, as we call it in, you know, in mathematics or in economics, uh, is just too costly. Um, we recognise that cabinets always, every day, must weigh up uh, the costs and benefits of, of the choices that are in front of them, and coronavirus is no different. So, um, you know, this report argues uh, to stay the course with the suppression strategy based on, um, you know, those fundamental public policy principles that you need to balance the costs and benefits of policy choices. Okay. Regarding the costs of coronavirus, is it still the case that the more we learn about this virus, the more worried we are about it? Because there are some pretty frightening stories about just how badly people are being affected by it, even, well, the people who survive. And there are concerns that there may be long-term health consequences. Have you thought about that, what that could mean, and how does that affect the, the decision-making by our political leaders? So are you talking about um, someone that's had coronavirus uh, and then um, continues with uh, health problems? Yes. Well, there are all these reports that people are uh, – they're – they're getting long-term lung, kidney, damage to other organs. Is that something you've looked at or is it just too early to tell? Well, the principle would apply that, that if, if, the, uh, if the benefits, that is the number of avoided deaths has been overestimated, then the benefits of the, you know, the quality, the quality-adjusted life years that you're avoiding have also been uh, underestimated. Overestimated because they would be correlated. Uh, in, in terms of um, people's underlying health and, and comorbidities, uh, you know what the research is saying uh, that I've seen tends to point in the other direction. It, it's the fact that people with heart, lung, circulatory um, problems, which are, which is also correlated with age, of course, uh, are more likely to get. Um, coronavirus and well are more likely to be badly affected by it and, and their death rates are much higher i think that some of the studies in italy and spain are showing that you know if you're carrying three or four serious comorbidities then and you know you're elderly then you are uh, very unlikely to to make it uh, so so what i've seen that the the causality is is going is going the other way, but you're right. I mean, it's still unknown about how people make full recoveries. There was a, a paper that came out, I think the day before uh, yesterday, a preprint. Um, as you know, a lot of academic papers are getting published without peer review, obviously to get the information out. Um, and that paper was saying that the antibodies that we developed to um, maintain our resistance to coronavirus um, a decline, decline quite rapidly over a number of weeks or months uh, and therefore, um, you know, we could get it again. But I think that, you know, that paper, as well as the arguments about the second wave in Victoria and possibly New South Wales, you could take that information and either argue, and argue either case. You could say, oh, well, that 
that proves that we need an elimination strategy because this thing just hangs around forever. Or you could argue, well, this thing is hanging around forever and therefore an elimination strategy is too costly and we should, um, you know, choose to stick with the suppression strategy. The view that Henry and I took in this paper is the latter view, but other people are, are looking at that same evidence and saying, uh, no, we need, to, we need to kill this thing off um, okay. as, as soon as possible. Yeah. By Henry, I, I should have mentioned earlier, well, you mean Henry Ergas, who is your co-author, so Henry Ergas, very distinguished Australian economist that uh, you've been working with for a while and is your co-author of this Menzies Research Centre paper, COVID-19, Getting Australia Safely Back to Work. Okay. Joe, I'll just ask one more question before we'll try and wrap up because, uh, sure. yeah, I've, uh, I've picked your brain quite a bit already. Uh, I was watching a YouTube video earlier on how different countries have responded to coronavirus. It's a CNN video. And mm. it looks like the countries that have been successful, well, they're the ones where they've managed to convince the public regarding the benefits of social distancing, regarding mask wearing. In Australia we seem to have forgotten the importance of social distancing as we started relaxing the restrictions. There isn't widespread wearing of masks. Do we need to, do our authorities need to be stronger in forcing us to socially distance, to wear masks if we go into public? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think you're right in your observation, and and I think that um, you know wearing masks, personal hygiene, personal social distancing, all of those things are at the personal level, at the local level, um, uh, are excellent strategies, and they involve a little bit of individual responsibility. So uh, I think that there's obviously a role for governments and health authorities to encourage as strongly as possible. Um, for, for people to take those actions because it, it drastically reduces the probability of the virus um, spreading. So as much as we can, I think we should avoid um, mandating because I think there's a long-term cost in a liberal democracy uh, to for the state telling people what to do. Uh, people are willing to accept it, especially in a national emergency, um, you know, for reasonably long periods of time. Um, but... I think you're starting to pull at the fabric of our democracy if um, you took that kind of um, top-down mandated approach. But um, you know, I, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, these basic health and hygiene measures will be with us for many years. I think that um, governments will uh, encourage them now through flu seasons, um, especially if the results of this year's flu season. Um, you know, a, a very mild because of all the social distancing that's been done as a result of uh, COVID. That's a bit, that's a bit of a, um, a, you know, a spillover benefit. But, um, you know, from my looking at the, the worst countries, um, you know, it seems to me that I'm, I'm just looking at a chart here of population fatality rate that I've drawn up deaths per 100,000 people. You know, Belgium's the worst at 83.7, then the UK, Italy, Spain, 
Sweden, France, US, Netherlands, Ireland. I mean, a lot of those European countries, um, you know, they share they share a border with another country. Um, they have uh, populations that are more elderly than Australia. Um, you know, they have higher rates of smoking, higher rates of comorbidity. So, you know, some of these countries where the virus got in early, the, the populations are much more fragile, I think, than the Australian population, much more densely packed in as well. So, you know, there are many things affecting the, um, that the, the infection fatality rate. Um, and I think, you know, in a sense, Australia has been lucky that, that we locked our, um, our overall border, our international border early. Um, we, you know, tripled our um, ICU capacity fairly early um, and we ramped up our ability to track and trace very fast. Uh, and that leaves us in a good position to, um, you know, try and stay the course on the suppression strategy. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I've thought of a couple of other questions, Joe. So uh, I've, I was just thinking about the Spanish flu in 1819. So you look at all the photos, the old mm. black and white photos, and everyone's wearing masks. Do we know how much deadlier that was than COVID-19? I mean, it it did spread out of control. So suppose everyone thought, well, we've got to wear a mask because we can see our relatives, our friends getting it. We do need to be careful. Do we know yet how deadly or how transmi- and how transmissible COVID-19 is compared with the Spanish flu? Uh, I, the information is there. I can't recall it off the top of my head. Obviously, the Spanish flu was, was very deadly in effect. Um, uh, they had similar measures. I mean, they had the masks. They, they quarantined people. I know uh, in New York they actually put, um, put messages in newspapers telling people that this family is officially quarantined in their home and not allowed to leave, or they put signs outside of people's homes. I, I, think, um, I think, you know, the Spanish flu spread, as, as everyone knows, because of the aftermath of World War I, um, uh, you know, was we didn't have access, um, or we were a hundred years away from kind of access to you know real time immediate information about the dangers of um, uh, the virus and um, where it was and what it was doing. So it could hit you with a second wave. It could sneak into a city. I mean, um, you know, we we have a lot more uh, tools at our disposal to try and stop that now. Uh, so, you know, you wouldn't expect um, the coronavirus to have the impact that uh, the Spanish flu had. I think at the moment, I think it's 560 or 70,000 deaths attributed to coronavirus, so it's well below. Mm. I think the Spanish flu was 30 to 50 million, I think the estimates are. Yeah. Okay, let's chat about your recommendations. Is one of your recommendations that we need to do this comprehensive cost-benefit analysis where we look at what were the costs of the restrictions that were imposed and all of those indirect costs. I mean, there are people talking about how the, the unemployment can lead to mental, well, it can lead to anxiety, depression, that could lead to suicide. There are possibly delays in people getting cancer treatments or getting investigated for uh, diseases. 
is that one of your recommendations? We need a comprehensive cost-benefit analysis where you've got to draw in economists and public health experts, Joe? Uh, no, I think I think a, you know a full-blown cost-benefit analysis uh, will come, uh, whether it's commissioned by the government or it's or it's done independently, you know, by an academic institution or a think tank. Um, uh, you know, who knows? But I don't think that's the most important thing. I mean, what what will that tell you? It, it will either tell you you were exactly right, okay, or it'll tell you you were wrong. I mean, who cares? It's already it's already been done. So I think the more important recommendations we make um, are to review, you know, the individual decisions and try and learn the lessons. So. Um, you know, for example, we've recommended that the National Cabinet should commission a report on national preparedness and develop a strategy of national preparedness, you know, looking at um, civil preparedness across the board in terms of the capacity to fund and recover from the cost of natural disasters and, and you know, health emergencies like the pandemic. So these, these are not really saying, well, we should do a cost-benefit analysis of you know, we, sh- we should evaluate all your decisions this year. I mean, that, that will come, but I don't think that's the right time. Um, this, this is about trying to very quickly learn some lessons from this that we can actually implement um, going forward. And I think the key recommendation in terms of lessons learned is that report on national preparedness, which we've recommended the Productivity Commission undertake because it's uniquely placed with its investing investigative processes to have those, you know, those public public and transparent hearings. Um, right. What do you mean by national preparedness, Joe? Do you mean having enough ventilators, making sure you have the PPE? What exactly would national preparedness entail? What would it involve? Well, it would, it would entail uh, that, but also looking at natural disasters like the summer, the summer bushfire season. Uh, this is not military preparedness. This is about civil preparedness to to shocks such as a pandemic, such as a very bad flu season, such as a, um, a you know summer bushfires, uh, flood you know floods and cyclones in Queensland, etc. So just to you know build on the work. Some of there's been even uh, some very recent work done. I think there was a 2019 paper on. Um, uh, on on pandemic preparedness prepared by the Department of Health. So it's building on that and taking a stock take of where we're at and trying to learn some of the lessons um, from from this current pandemic. Um, you know, and I'm sure there's many many lessons to be learned from this you know very complex um, journey that we've been through this year. Yeah, what I've been impressed by is just how well or it appears they've been working well together, the the premiers and the prime minister have been doing, how they've been going with that national cabinet. That seems to have gone reasonably well. There were a couple of disputes I remember early on. You compare Australia with the United States, which is just a complete disaster, and the national government there, the Trump administration's just stopped the they're not really le- providing any leadership anymore. It, it's just absolutely extraordinary. So, I mean, we'd probably look pretty good in any ranking of national preparedness around the world. Would that be a fair assessment? 
Well, I think in the Westminster system, there's more a greater concentration in executive power so that, uh, you know, so the Westminster system perhaps arguably can respond to national emergencies better than a, a system in the United States where the, the president of the United States actually doesn't have that much power. It's shared with the Congress in terms of raising money bills and the, the you know, the Supreme Court and, and probably more importantly, the states. The states have a lot of control over, um, similar to Australia, um, in terms of, you know, um, uh, curfews and closing borders and their health departments would undertake the the tracking and tracing, it wouldn't be at a national level. So I guess the US faces um, similar problems. I mean, uh, it's a much more argumentative society at the moment and it's much it's much larger and, um, you know, dealing with the outbreak in New York was similar to dealing with an outbreak in the, the whole of Australia. Um, the United States, their, their uh, population fatality, they've had the most deaths, but their population fatality uh, rate uh, ranks seventh after so Belgium, United Kingdom, Italy, Spain, Sweden, France, and then the United States at 35.5 deaths per 100,000. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's um, 70 or 80 times higher than Australia uh, and it's about uh, 10 times, uh, it's uh, five times the weighted average across the leading 77 countries and 10 times the median. So they're on the wrong side in terms of the performance um, but they're by no means the worst. I mean, they're less than half Belgium and um, about two-thirds of the United Kingdom, Italy and Spain. Right. Where are those uh, stats coming from, Joe? Uh, the stats I use in my database are taken from Johns Hopkins and and then the official Australian uh, data. Okay. Excellent. So you've got your own uh, COVID-19 database there. I'll send it to you, Jay. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. I know that's good. Could be good advertising for you, uh, Joe. Uh, if anyone needs uh, COVID nineteen data and international comparisons, Joe Brannigan of Tulip Wood Economics is uh, fully across it. Okay, Joe. Any final points before we close? Uh, well, I guess going back to your, your first question, the, the the point of the paper. Um, uh, by the time it was released, was really that that I, that that at least in my view and uh, Professor Ergas's view that staying the course with the suppression strategy is the right way to go um, because the elimination strategy is not a viable option, and um, you know at the appropriate time in the future, um, you know we should review what we've done in 2020 and 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 really try and um, learn all the lessons um, moving forward. Okay. Joe Brannigan from Chilipwood Economics, thanks so much for your time. That was really informative and well done on the paper. Thanks, mate. Good on you. We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode, so thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on whatever platform you are listening on. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.